Fabulous with Vibs and Vicky, the ThinkShip podcast for professionals who aspire to be fabulous leaders, those who not only succeed, but also purposefully seek to reinvent the world. Welcome to episode three of uh, Being Fabulous. In this episode, we describe what it means to be deliberate and why that's so important as one of our four Vs of being a fabulous leader. What you'll hear in this episode is why it's so important for a fabulous person to be deliberate, why it's just so hard, and finally, rookie errors at different stages of your career, whether you are at the superstar performer, awesome manager, or top-notch executive. I know you're going to enjoy it. Welcome to Be Fabulous, episode three. Um, this episode is going to be all about being deliberate. But for those of you who may have missed the first two podcasts, amazing as it sounds, we're on episode three. Um, this is my sort of quick bring you up to speed on the last two podcasts. So we started out with this idea of fabulous people are the ones that have the greatest potential to be fabulous leaders who will not only succeed, be successful, make tons of money, so forth, but also reinvent the world. And because the world itself is getting faster, what that really means is success is more tied to one's ability to adapt than perhaps ever before in our history. So what does that actually mean? So adaptability is really saying that what's going to make us more successful is our is the speed at which we can learn and apply new things, new knowledge, um, as opposed to the number of years of experience we have doing whatever it is that we've done before. And that's that's quite a tricky thing to wrap your head around because if you think of the professional environment for over a 50, 60, 70 year period, we generally work on the assumption that the more years of experience you have at something, the better you are at something. But what we're actually seeing is when the world moves faster and changes faster, it's actually the speed of adaptability which becomes more important. So the four Ds are, are traits, characteristics, are wiring, if you like, that are most important for fabulous people in order for them to be adaptable. So we should be nurturing these most. So last episode, we, we dug in to the first one, which was be daring. Now, being daring was a key component of being adaptable. So today, um, we're digging deeper into the second one, which is being deliberate. So Vicky, tell us, why, why is being deliberate so important as it relates to being adaptable? Well, Vips, when we think about being deliberate and you think about what it means... It's about doing things consciously and doing them intentionally. So we are choosing to take an action that may or may not be something we do naturally. It's something we're doing deliberately. And given the world is moving so quickly, as you just described, we have to consciously decide to rewire how we think about the world in order to show up differently or we'll keep doing what we always did before. So it has to be a conscious choice, or our default pattern is to do the thing we know how to do. And without that deliberate, intentional change of our behavior, nothing, nothing really is going to happen. And if we don't actually prioritize and make it important to us, we're always going to operate in the old way, which is going to make us feel like we're not quite living up to what's expected of us. And our imposter syndrome nemesis is going to creep in again and make us feel very, very unworthy. Yeah, that's, that's, yeah, totally. I, I see that all the time. And, uh, uh, you, you know, this comment, you know, it made me think about a conversation you and I were having yesterday. Um, and I think we were, we, were doing an, we were doing a seminar and we used like a working out analogy. And, uh, and it was funny because I think I was, I was actually speaking to your personal trainer, funnily enough, about this topic. And, and it was... It was, at the end of the day, you know, you can read everything there is to know about being healthy, being fit, eating well, meditating, breathing, uh, Bill Gates's 27 tips for being uber successful, Warren Buffett's investment tips. But if you don't actually do the work, the reps, 
if you don't actually make the meals, then all that knowledge doesn't actually mean anything. It's, you know, you may feel like you know everything, but you don't actually put any of, any of it in practice. So it, this, this idea of, um, of thinking about being deliberate, it, it's almost like um, I draw analogies to having stamina. The only real way to build muscle in something that's new is by doing more of it. Is that, is that, is that a fair place to go with that? Yeah, it is. And it's, it's not that easy because to build stamina in something that your brain is not designed to do requires you digging deep. It's, it, does, it requires you having something bigger than yourself to think about, to understand how to rewire and do that to yourself because it's not going to happen naturally. Like you said, I mean, I think gyms make their money on getting people to sign up and hoping that no one actually does sign up. <laughs> no, you, you, want, you want them to sign up. You want them to sign up. You just want them to attend. Yeah, that's what I mean. Yeah, that's what I mean. They, 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 they have, their model is based on oversubscription because yeah. they know that most people actually aren't going to show up and do the work. Yeah, it's a guilt subscription. Yeah, and we all have these great intentions, but deciding to follow through is really, really hard. And that's why New Year's resolutions for most people are an absolute waste of time because we say something, but by the time February 1 rolls around, whether it's the gym or eating healthy or whatever it might be, you just give up the will. It's just not that much fun. Because it's hard. Absolutely. A absolutely. Fe February the 1st. February the 1st, though, you're being very uh, optimistic. I, I think most of them die at the end of January. <laughs> Second week in January. Yeah. I, I, should, I should probably share at this point, Vicky, that I did make a New Year's resolution this year, January the 1st. Um, and I'm wishing every single day I hadn't made this particular New Year's resolution. So this is the year I gave up drinking. Mm. and being incarcerated at home um, during, during you know, our, our COVID crisis right now. It's like, I could really do with a glass of wine. And, um, but no, the, the, and you're right, though. The, the, the stamina that's required, particularly when your normality has been shaken, uh, it's hard. And I, I, I didn't drink much anyway. You know, I used to have maybe a couple of, a couple of drinks a week kind of thing, max. But I, I can imagine how much harder it would be if I, if that was, a, you know, if someone said, if it had been give up, give up the coffee, yeah. Uh, no, forget it. I would have definitely fallen off that ladder by now. Well, that's what you're talking about is those things are often used initially socially because they're enjoyable, but they really do become our coping strategies. Yeah. You know, so what you're talking about with the pandemic and the period we're in right now, you know, we can go for caffeine or alcohol or sugar or distraction or whatever our choice is because it's, it's easier than actually focusing on what's really, really important for our health. Yeah. That's good for us. So it takes, perhaps it takes practice. So, so talk to us about why it's important from the work world to be deliberate. Why, 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 why is that a valuable, and actually not just valuable, but an essential characteristic in order to be a fabulous leader? Yeah. So the way, the way I always think about this is, is that the way we think about like internally, I'm talking about the way we think about what constitutes success looks different. If we're if we're if we're in that first whatever five eight years of our career where we are you know what I call what we call the journey to the superstar performer, then and really we're mastering a craft. We're just getting good at whatever it is that we're trying to get good at. Okay, so success tends to look like getting good at something. Okay. So you're, that's going to get a lot of deliberate practice. It's going to get a lot of muscle building. If you're a software developer, you're going you're gonna to get really good with frameworks and coding and JavaScript and whatever. If you're an accountant, you're going to get really good with double book, double, you know, double book entry. Um, if you're a, a copywriter, you're going to get really good at writing. If you're a data scientist, you're going to get really good with regressions. So, so what we, we don't realize is that that deliberate practice, those reps, if you like, are essentially creating habits and therefore self-beliefs about what constitutes us being successful, okay? And then what happens is uh, because we all want to earn more money and get promoted and all those wonderful things, then what happens is, you know, either because we're, we're desperate for it or the environment wants us to, we, we find ourselves getting promoted. We get promoted and then what happens is we're on that journey to awesome manager. And now, now success looks different. If, you, if all you do... If all you do is operate in your routines and habits that you develop for success as a superstar performer and you try to apply them as awesome manager, you're going to go wrong. Yeah, and it's, it's one that I know particularly well. Um, 
Phipps always smiles when we talk about this journey because it's one of these journeys that many of us will recognize. When you pride yourself on being that superstar performer and having that deep expertise, it's just easier to do it yourself. It's just easier to do it your way. When you have to figure out how to get something done through somebody else, you've never really had to do that before, Vips. You may have had to collaborate and work in teams, but actually trying to get another human being to get the outcome that's required and not tell them how to do it. <laughs> when you pride yourself on your expertise and how to get things done in a very efficient way, and you may not even have thought through well, how do I do that? You know, it's one thing to be a deep expert, but real mastery comes from going beyond expertise and understanding how to break down the task in order to be able to teach somebody else how to do that. And you not only have to be able to do that for the task, but understand their thinking styles and work preferences and motivations and everything mm -hmm. else. And it's the reason why we have our very first circle of suck that many of us can relate That's to. It. For That's me, the one. for me, it lasted about three different years because you don't really realize what you're up against you're feeling all this pressure but you don't really know it's it's almost like there's a invisible barrier between you and the work getting done and each time you push and push this resistance comes back and you don't know why you you, you can't figure out the dynamics of it and uh, and you know and you know no one can help you with it explicitly because because really what you're doing is identity rewiring and the problem is only you know how you're wired. And so only you know what is going to motivate you to rewire. So, you know, it's kind of why, you know, I, um, our job at ThinkShift is really, you know, people say, you know, coaching is such an overused term. You know, you, you know, I'm no longer using that term because, you know, anyone and their uncle can get certified as being a coach these days. Um, but but the, the best definition that I ever saw was, we are facilitators of self-directed neuroplasticity. I know that sounds really heavy and nasty. What it's really saying is we're going to help you figure out how to rewire your own brain because I, I can't really do it for you. <laughs> Just, you know, it's, it's, it's yeah. what it's good. So when you, I, I think the reason why you can't feel like, the reason why it feels like you've got this invisible barrier is because there's going to be four, five, six hundred things that you're having to go back and say, but I've always done it this way. I don't want to change that. It worked for me. I got promoted. I got out of South Africa. I got to Switzerland. I met my husband. I'm now in London. Why the hell do I want to change that? Right? So all of those things, um, this is why to me, uh, when we talk about being deliberate, you have to be deliberate in order to want to go through the pain and anguish that's required to get through the circle of suck. And if you don't do it, what actually happens is you fake it, right? You pretend and that, that's the road to imposter syndrome. And that's worse because everybody sees that. Not only do they see that, it's so damn obvious. You think you're being really clever by trying to hide it. But it's like, it's like when my son, right, thinks he's being really smart. Jay thinks he's really smart by saying after dinner, um, how many chocolate bars do we have left? Right? He thinks he's being really sophisticated right? in his, his, in his influencing <laughs> skills. And for me, it's like completely transparent. No, Jay, you've already had three chocolate bars today. You can't have a fourth one, even if it is wonderful Godiva. Right? But when you're in that space, you think that you're being really clever and really smart. And, and you know, even if we don't like <laughs> our managers and executives, you can bet your life they see those signals. They're not stupid. And you know, we just forget that. You know, it's... it's, it's Absolutely. You know, youth is wasted on the youngest, they say. And, uh, and you know, all of our tactics, they, they're much more transparent um, as we go on. But, but I, I want to bring it back, to, Vicky, to deliberate before we talk about what it means for a superstar performer and, uh, sorry, deliberate for awesome managers and, and executives. Because I think a nice, nice, easy way to think about it for our audience is that to me, there's a deliberateness of intention. Okay. It's really easy to say, you know, I have good intentions to be a better manager. I have good intentions to provide better feedback. I have, be I, have, I have the intention to lose 20 pounds in the, over the next six months. I have the intention to run a marathon, right? These things, it's very easy to say that, okay? But you have to get to a place where you're able to take that intention or that inspiration, if you like, and, and get deliberate about the choices. So yes, it would be wonderful to run the London Marathon when it's allowed to resume. <laughs> However, um, Am I making a choice to go and run the London Marathon or am I just going to, to kind of hold that as, a, as something that I can regret 10 years from now having never done? 
right? Uh, owning that's quite hard. Well, it's the difference between wishful thinking and being very hopeful about something and making it happen. It's that commitment. It's that, that purposeful commitment that is a very, very tough place for many people yes. to go to. So from you get from intention to commitment through deliberate choice. And deliberate choice is really accepting the consequences of that choice. If, if, I, if, I, if I make a commitment that I want to be a really, really good manager, then really what I'm committing to is being less of an expert. And people find that really freaking hard to wrap their heads around. Well, it, it, it makes sense because sure. their, their value is less tangible. When they were a superstar performer, they could see an output that said to them, hey, I'm successful, I know what this is. Now it's very woolly, but it's not clear what that really looks like. And that makes people very uncomfortable because you don't really know if it's the right thing. You don't know if it's the thing that's actually being asked of you because it's a lot less. People can't really give you a checkbox of, hey, do all these things and you'll be successful. That's right. And on top of that, you've had all this um, uh, reinforcement, brain reinforcement, that everything that you've done so far has been wonderful because you're being rewarded with more money in a promotion. So, so there's, you, you know, you haven't, you haven't given your brain any reason <laughs> to experience pain with anything you've done thus far. So why would you, why would you, why would you go racing for pain when, when everything that's worked for you thus far has worked really well? And ironically, this is going to be, this is going to be more of an issue for the superstar performers who are really superstar performers. Meaning from a business point of view, it's These are going to be the people that, you thought were your best performers are, going to, are going to be the ones that are going to have the hardest time through that first circle of suck. And the same thing happens with the manager to top-notch exec as well. Well, it's why companies like IBM and Microsoft and a lot of the big tech giants um, have these incredible engineers and then they get so frustrated when they promote yeah. them to managers and they wonder why they suck. And, you know, it's the reason why a lot of those companies end up with dual career tracks because most of them are, they should just stay as great individual contributors, as distinguished engineers or architects. Give them a choice because not only do they not know, but often many of them are not very good at it. They don't have those interpersonal and right brain skills that are needed and they don't want to necessarily spend the time to become good at them. And, and you know, and many companies are doing that. Like Google, for example, do that. And I think the challenge is more of an internal one though. Like even if you just accept from an organizational point of view that we'll have dual career tracks, the problem often comes is that people's egos take over, right? Like I, I don't, I don't, I only want to do what I'm really good at and be an expert, but I also want to be the CEO or I want to be the head architect or I want to be, you know what I mean? Like, like, I like you, you want the glory of the C-suite, right? But you, because your ego demands it, that's a sign of progression. That's a sign of success. That's a sign, sign of leadership, right? So your, your ego wants, wants the other path, but you don't really want to do any of the work on the other path. You want to do the work on, you want to do the work on the current path. And then, then the issue becomes an economics problem because when you're on that, if you like, the expert career path, really your market value is going to go up and down. If you think of it over a, over a five or 10 or 15 year time frame, your value is going to go up and down. Your salary is going to go up and down depending on how hot your skills happen to be. Whereas the other side is way more predictable. Okay, And when push comes to shove, most professionals want a reasonable level of predictability, particularly with regards to their income. And this this creates a this creates quite a challenge, because yeah, these are these are hard things to resolve internally. Is my point. Yeah, and then you add to that societal pressures. So most parents and grandparents understand if you're a manager or an executive, that you have people reporting to you that you're more successful. They don't really understand this expert career track and how, as someone of very senior. C-suite level expertise with no people reporting to you that you can be successful. They just don't get it, Phipps. So you right. feel all that pressure of... It's peer well, pressure. Any... It's family yeah. pressure. It's yeah. cultural yeah. pressure, particularly, I mean, I mean, we see this a lot in software development, right? I, I mean, I, I know this from a cultural point of view with our Indian culture. It, it's, it's, you know, what do you mean you're not a manager? <laughs> it's like... <laughs> I mean, it's... And I think, the, I think the other challenge, Phipps, is... Not many people truly understand what it means to be a great manager and leader. They can point out all the ones that are not good, but they don't really know what it means to be good in terms of internalizing the behaviors and then understanding the commitments of what it takes to, to rewire. So why don't we take folks on that journey of what does it look like to rewire ourselves as we go through the different career stages? 
So let's talk about what deliberate then looks like, right? In, in that first phase, um, that superstar performer phase, I tell you, deliberate to me looks like being really, really focused on what's important for you to master your craft. It's very easy earlier on in your career to be a bit of a sort of a jack of all trades and a master of none. It, it, it's, you know, because it's, it's easy to pick up elementary skills quickly. It's quite hard to become a craftsperson at anything, okay? So if you don't do that, what's going to actually happen is you're, you don't develop any sufficient, significant depth. And so to me, that, that's a really important part on that superstar performer journey. And being deliberate is just recognizing that whatever you're doing from a job point of view and a functional point of view, it, it's very, very important to make sure that you are, you are developing sufficient depth in, in your in your competency and your skill set, because your career is going to continue, whether it's in that same organization or in another organization, you, you want that to be solid foundation upon with which to grow. And if you allow yourself to meander too much earlier on in your career, it can be very difficult to have any kind of foundational expertise if you haven't been very deliberate about cultivating it beforehand. And if you add to that, Bibs, the dimensions of what does it take to be well-rounded? So You've got your craft that you've mastered, but things like attention to detail, things like turning up on time, the punctuality, your presence in meetings, they're very specific behaviors that are very, very important as we think about the early part of your career and being a good team player, providing quality work, being able to take information, analyze it, come up with great recommendations. These are very deliberate practices that you would not necessarily have been able to hone in your previous life as a student. And they're not very clearly articulated as to what are all the different areas that are really important. And they can feel somewhat petty when you're 22, 23, 24, 25, and feeling like you should really be advising the C-suite because you don't yet know what it takes to advise the C-suite and you feel like you can conquer the world, but actually, it's the invincibility factor. In, absolutely. It's a beautiful thing. But if your slides have a mistake or if the formatting's wrong or you turn up a little late or you don't have important points to share in a very impactful way, you've just lost instant credibility. And those are very deliberate practices as a young superstar performer that are equally important to build as you mastering your craft. Yeah. So then you have that circle of suck. Okay, when you're, you know, you're good at what you do, you want more money, the environment promotes you, and it says, there you go, you now have a team of three people, you've got to, you've got to, you've got to manage, okay? And more often than not, you get no sensible management training, right? They, someone, someone, someone tells you now, you're now responsible for them, go figure it out. I, I, I'm, being, I'm being facetious. Many companies have management trainings and so forth, but they tend to be very formalized around the processes of being a manager. Yeah, it's how do you recruit, how do you manage yeah. performance? as opposed to the rewiring that has to go on in your brain. Right. And the rewiring that has to go on your brain is really interesting here because this, this rewiring is a, okay, so the, the things that you thought success looked like now change. So in, in simple terms, um, success looked like in, your, in, that, in that superstar performer stage, it really looks like do your task, do them well, don't screw up too often, and don't wind up too many people. And if you if you do those really well, I don't care I don't care what you are. You're a management consultant. You're a marketer. You're a lawyer. If you do those at that stage in your career, you're going to be fine. You, you're going to be fine. But then you get to the source and manager level, and now it's now you it's it's not you doing your tasks. It's how do you get other people and possibly superstar performers? Like how, how do you how do you choreograph and coordinate what they're doing rather than doing it yourself? Right now, so you're 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 not think you're thinking about. Um, you're thinking about the collective outputs of your team rather than what you were doing. Then you're also thinking a lot more about results now, okay? So what's the results I need? Not have I followed the right 16 process. It's not did I do my five story points. It's is the, is the value of those five story points actually worth it? You know, the, the result becomes a lot more important than the thing, the, the tasks. Well, it's all about success criteria. And That's right. if you weren't able to see what you did and connected to the outcomes and what success looks like, this becomes incredibly difficult because you're not able to see the end and what done looks like. And then 
how do you chunk it up and get it done? What are those steps? Right. How do you think two or three steps ahead? How do you manage two or three steps ahead? If you can even see it. If you can even see it. Even if you can even see it. Because, you know, when you're in that superstar performer stage, you're generally doing things that require high levels of reactivity. This task has to be done this week. This task has to be done in the next two hours. This task has to be done in the next two weeks. It's very immediate. You know, as a manager, you often have operational responsibilities. You have to think about reporting. You have to think about communication. You have to think about um, morale. You have to think about team spirit. So the big difference here, so, so deliberateness for a manager is at its core, I have to want to care about people and manage people <laughs> as opposed to do my thing that I do really well. And, and if, in that, 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 that requires a lot of deliberate practice because what it's going to do is it's going to expose all sorts of habits that you either don't have or are wrong. So for example, if I'm a superstar performer and I'm a data scientist, then my job looks like coming into work assuming you can go to work, burying myself in a screen, figure out what regressions I need to do, what, and what data I need to analyze, and I do it. I can be heads down for eight hours with my headphones on, and that would be perfectly acceptable and fine, okay? But if I'm, if I'm a manager responsible for a data scientist team, I, ca I can't do that anymore. I, I, can't, I can't be closed off to the world with, with you know, my $400 headphones staring into three screens all day. I have to be talking to my team. I have to be making sure the right projects are being worked on. I have to be making sure people are being mentored. I have to be making sure feedback is being given. So you're not going to do any of that stuff if you internally don't choose to practice those skills. And what happens normally, sorry, Vicky, I'll hand over in a sec. What I see happening normally is people just do what they were doing before and think they can make up for all those manager, manager responsibilities on a Saturday morning or or a Thursday afternoon between five and seven. It doesn't work that way. Yeah, and that's, that's very well said. And, and if you add to that, not truly understanding what that role is and the thing you actually enjoyed was being a data scientist, everything in your being is going to drag you back to doing the tasks. And it's very hard for you to take that step away and say, I see value in getting stuff done through others. It just feels so intangible especially if you're a data scientist there's nothing coming out of it that feels good you don't see the tangible results in the same way if somebody's even explained that to you so um, it becomes very difficult to get your head around well if my role is to build a high-performing team and remove the obstacles for the team well what does high-performing look like where are they now how do I get them there and actually if you do really think it through and learn the techniques and tools along the way they're very structured things you do do, which are very deliberate, but it's very hard to understand what they are unless someone's helped you understand them or you figured it out yourself. Yeah, think about it. The data science is a great example, though, because if you think about it, you probably studied for years to acquire the skills to do that. And then you've been doing them and the world is telling you that the world is moving towards everything. Like the world is everything's about data. Right? Data is more valuable than oil now, apparently. OK, so um, if, you, if, you, if you think of it that way, then why the hell would you let it go, right? I mean, it's, it, it, it's such a, it, it's, it, it's, it's almost like saying, why would I want to go back to grade school and start all over again? Well, it's because there's not enough talk in organizations from my experience of what does it really mean to be a manager? It's more of a, I don't know what those managers and leaders do. It's my time. I want that title and I want the money. And it's literally that's simple for most people. They don't fundamentally understand. And it's either because they haven't had experience of these awesome managers who are building high-performing teams and stretching and developing them at every stretch of every moment of the day, or they haven't internalized it to themselves to understand the difference between what they're doing. They just think it's a little bit more responsibility. Keep doing what you're doing. Have some people. Babysit. And off you go. That's what they think in a lot of instances. Yeah. Yeah. It's probably worthwhile also saying that, we, you know, we're kind of we're kind of being a little bit dismissive about all of the hard skills that are appropriate to do as a manager, right? Like, um, like uh, you know, when you typically go on manager training, okay, they're gonna they're, they're gonna tell you about you know, you know, this is how you write a status report. This is how you this is how you should do this is how you should do a team meeting. This is you know the the, the tactics, if you like, like of managing the process of managing, you know, putting measurements in place, putting KPIs in place. They, they, these are all good. 
right? But I, you know, from our point of view, we're, we're not we're not trying to create fabulous managers. We're trying to create fabulous leaders. So our, our managers, the awesome managers, have to go above and beyond what would con- what would be considered a good manager, if you like, right? And I, and I think that's that's because what we what we're conditioning them for for the future is it's going to sound terrible, but it, it's more than an institutional manager who's just responsible for their little fiefdom. We're, we're conditioning them to become leaders of people rather than keep the train on the tracks. It's kind of like, um, you know, you can be a great A student manager, but we don't need A students. We need like A++ students. And I, I think that sometimes gets, sometimes gets lost. Um, so it's, I'm not trying to be dismissive of other management skills, just that these are things that are the hard things, the, the wiring, the rewiring is the hard stuff that is above and beyond that you, you, can't, you can't really do with a, you know, go and do 20 hours on Coursera and it will figure it out for you. It, it doesn't work that way um, because they, it's quite deep and introspective. Yeah, and this is why it's so important to be deliberate about, hey, I'm not just going to dip my toe into what this looks like and being a manager. I'm actually going to be very deliberate about looking at all the things that I did before and is that my job or is that my team's job and what is my job and where are the gaps where am I currently and where are the gaps and every three to six months looking back and getting feedback from your team and others around you and making that a deliberate choice and realizing it's going to feel feel kind of tough for a lot of people to do yeah you know you know as you're saying it I'll tell you the thing that I comes up in coaching conversations with me all the time and it tends to happen sometimes in the also manager zone definitely in the top-notch executive zone which is people have a very low threshold of failure so in that journey to being a superstar performer, it's actually possible to not to to pretty much get everything right, because your 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 scope tends to be task centric. So as long as you're doing your tasks really well, you can actually be on top of your emails. You can actually be on top of your tasks. You can always deliver your deliverables, whatever they happen to be, on time. Okay. So it's so it's it's you you can feel like you're winning and winning 95, 96, 97, 98, 99 percent of the time. When you're a manager, you can't because when you're, if you're a really good manager, you know that you're going to take some arrows. You just know it. So, so doing, you know, having 75% success across the team is doing fabulously well, but it also means that you have to be comfortable with 25% failure. And, and that's really failure that you learn from. It's not negative failure, but if you've conditioned yourself with a 99% threshold of perfection, right, then a very, very, very respectable healthy 75% of perfection and 25% of mistakes, if you like, errors, that's hard to wrap your head around. And then you, you know, transitioning to executives gets even worse because think about your life as an executive. So, you know, you've got through this manager circle of suck, you're in an executive landscape now, and now you really don't have a clue what most of the people in your teams are doing most of the time. You, You just don't know. So there there, there you're, you might get 50% of things right. You might get, you know, and, and that, that's a really, really difficult thing to do, particularly if you were really bright. And if you're the kind of person who went through college, university, never really, never really, you know, got anything less than an A, never really failed at a subject, never, never, did, never did bad, right? That's a real shock to the system that, that, can, that can hit you um, in one of these. It tends to happen either in the awesome manager or the top-notch exec circle of suck. And that has to be a deliberate decision that I'm going to allow certain things in my team to go wrong because on balance, we need to focus on these three things that are going to be more important over the next six months. You know, what you're saying there is really interesting, Bips. I was having this conversation with a a client of mine a couple of weeks ago, and he does not like the word failure. He chooses to use the word limited success because that's his way of uh, rewiring his head around, allowing for some of those things that aren't going well, but really focusing in on, we didn't quite get the outcomes we wanted. We got some success, but it was limited. And so for those of you that are those superstar performers and like to get everything right, that could be another way of allowing yourself to take some of those arrows by realizing, you know, whether you call it failure, whether you call it limited success, it's your own interpretation around it, but it's recognizing that as you get more senior, the goal is to help others grow and learn and create their own autonomy. And that means there has to be mistakes. There has to be things that aren't going to go well. 
or they're never really going to learn. They're not really going to have the initiative. And this is, if you think about it, right? So now we're in that top-notch exec area. This is really, really tricky because if you think about it, like even in our professional lives, let's say the last 20 years, right? If you think about it, you think about how much more we want to measure and metri have metrics around everything now, okay? I mean, that's, that's, you know, technology and data has given us the ability to, you know, relatively efficiently measure most things, whether it's supply chain processes, whether it's performance management processes. You know, I mean, there's so many things that we can measure right now, okay? That if you think about it, the more measure, if you, if you put measures around absolutely everything, you systemically create an environment where it's unsafe to fail, despite saying it's okay to fail, okay? So there's a, there's a really interesting balance that has to be struck there between how do, you, how do you create a systemic environment that encourages learning and growth while also balancing that against business performance and business metrics? Because if you over-index on that, then what you're really going to do is going to make it unsafe to fail, right? But if you, if you overdo it on the learning side, then you're going to have a, you're going to have a low performance culture. But I think people don't see it as a trade-off, right? People don't, people don't realize the, the trade-off that they're making because it tends to be, it tends to be different, different functional areas, different, different C-suite leaders, if you like, will take a different position. And generally, it's left to the CEO to figure out, okay, what balance am I comfortable with? Um, it's one of those things that, you know, even when, when um, you know, I mean, you and I have had this conversation. When, I was at Quetis, when, we, when we were at Quetis, I was number two, and I never had to really deal with that problem. I, I could see the view through the lens of, of people, if you like, and operations, but I couldn't really see it through the CEO's lens because, you know, because perhaps you had to do that. And, um, but with ThinkShift, I, I find myself in that place all the time. And it's like, it's, you, you get into this place with like, well, okay, I'm having to calibrate that balance between creating a supportive learning environment, but it's also got to be sufficiently performance-centric. But I know that if I optimize on overperformance, then, then it's going to be unsafe to fail. And then we won't grow anyone. And then we won't have the next generation of ThinkShifters. And I think this is true for every organization. And, I, and this is why I think um, being deliberate around these sorts of decisions should be the responsibility of great executives. I, I, I'd go as far as to say, I think most, most executives don't even think about it. And the ones that do think about it, they, they go, oh my God, that's too hard. Uh, forget it. I'll, I'll, I'll worry about it another day. It, it, it's such a hard thing to deal with if you, if you can't condition yourself to see that as part of your own personal success. And then if you can, there are actually some really interesting tactics out there. So... I've seen uh, one group come up with a wall of lemons where they literally cut out shapes and colored them in. They were yellow. And every time the team had their limited success or their mistake, depending on your preference, they would write the event up on a lemon and put it on their lemon wall. And then they'd have a conversation around it, again, being very deliberate about failure. Yeah. And then coming out the other side, either they turned it into a glass of lemonade and it all went swimmingly, or it became compost and it didn't go so well. Yeah. Uh, and so there's very deliberate things you can do, even about the, the cognitive choice about, okay, what does it look like for me to be okay with a little less perfection in the spirit of growing and innovation and um, helping the team become stronger? And how do we turn it into learning rather than something that feels heavy and that I cannot accept. Yeah. Yeah. That's so true. Hey, you, you, when you were talking about the lemons, I thought you were going to say something else. I thought you were going to say they made people eat the lemons every time. They were... <laughs> well, Vips, that would have HR issues all over it, <laughs> especially here in the US. I'm not sure you could do that, my friend. I thought, I thought that's where you were going to go. Uh, oh, but that's yeah, funny. No. No, you're right. But, but I think, I think the, the point I'm trying to get across is that that's, a, that's an executive responsibility to be able to articulate what is acceptable relative to the culture and the environment that you're trying to create in an organization. And, and, and it's very easy. I mean, who doesn't want to be higher performance? Everyone wants to be higher performance, right? It's easy to roll out certain words and certain language when we don't really realize the consequences of what we're saying. And, um, and that's not, you know, I'm a big fan of high performance, but you know that if you... Whenever you optimize for something, something else is going gonna, is gonna to be less optimal. 
yeah. because of it. Well, we, we're seeing it right now, even with uh, organizations who've been pushing the efficiency agenda with COVID-19. I mean, that's out the window. There's no ways we can be efficient right now. And that's causing a lot of dissonance. And it's really important for them to choose a deliberate posture for the phase we're in right now, whether it's chaos or acceptance, depending on your particular situation. And what is the right way to get through this? But it's not efficiency right now, that's for sure. Yeah. So th- those, to me, those, those, this concept of deliberate choice and deliberate practice at executives, you know, is, is, uh, it comes up over and over again. Like you're talking about deliberate choice in the context of COVID. I'll give you another one um, that's in the context of COVID right now is so many organizations are in the process of trying to figure out what their new right-sized workforce looks like, okay? Now, whether that means layoffs or it doesn't mean layoffs or whatever, right? And, and it's, you know, a good example of a deliberate choice there is do I optimize knowing, knowing that I'm going to have to make a reduction in workforce, do I optimize for only doing it once or do I optimize for the lowest number of people that I need to make redundant now, okay? Both, you get a different answer if you, if you do both. And, and, and those are the sorts of deliberate choices that, I, that leaders have to own. And they, co- they go back to principles and values. They tend to go back to principles and values more than they go to um, right and wrong, if you like. And, th- and then you have the other side, which is deliberate practice. So that's the reps. And, and it's, it, to me, it's really interesting how um, the... The, the, what, the amount we can rewire from a brain point of view through just sheer repetition is absolutely extraordinary. Now, you know, Anders Ericsson, who's the, who's the guy who wrote the book on this, on deliberate practice, um, well worth a read, by the way. Um, you know, this is kind of what was kind of reshaped and popularized as the 10,000-hour um, uh, rule. Um, um, Malcolm Gladwell. Gladwell. Yeah. yeah. Um, but this basic idea that if you if you do something often enough, you're going to get better at it. Now, you know, there are constraints to that. The con- constraints are basically genetics, okay? It's, it's, at some point, you're going to hit genetics. Um, but, you know, within a professional context, there really isn't too much that we can't rewire. But those do require a high level of understanding your, your defaults, your triggers, and then choosing to react differently and then... And then make an active effort to do the what we call the brain training practices, the reps. And, you know, it's very difficult, like simple ones I see, you'd be amazed how many executives I see who they need deliberate practice in making good eye contact. Simple as that. Oh, yeah. Right? Oh, yeah. I mean, it sounds, it sounds like such a silly thing to say. Number of execs I've said, you know, make a mental note of the eye color of everyone you speak to. And, and it's like, you know, people think I'm listening now. Yeah, no, yeah, yeah. Because you're making eye contact now, you know, and... Even at simple stuff like that, I don't, I don't want that to get lost as we get quite deep into some of this stuff. Yeah, and it's, it's funny you say that because I'm thinking back to one of my clients who's probably listening to this. And, and we had that exact conversation explaining how important eye contact is. And his response was, well, I don't need eye contact. It's like, yeah, for your thinking preference as a very analytical, highly cognitive individual, it's not important to you. But to others who respond in a way that is focused on the relational aspects, it becomes so important. Yeah. It feels like I cannot trust you. And it became a very deliberate practice of what does that look like? How do you repeat that idea of making eye contact? And even something like that is incredibly uncomfortable yeah. for people if they're not yeah. used to doing it. it. It's, it's, so so these, these deliberate practices, there are, you know, we, there's all sorts of techniques and tools around how you can practice these over and over again. And and to me, we're... we're, we're my little soapbox on this is very much, this is where I struggle with personality profiles. You know, any, all of them, right? It doesn't matter which one. I'm not, it's not about picking sides, but it's, but it's, it's a good example of something that's designed to give you some level of cognitive self-awareness or psychological self-awareness. That's what they're for. They're, they're trying to give you an insight into some patterns that represent the person that you are showing up as, okay? But nine times out of 10 in the professional environment, what I see is those tools get abused as a way of either being a crutch for someone and their set of behaviors, you know, oh, they're like that. Their profile says they're like that, so it's okay. Or worse, you say, my profile says I'm ter- terrible at this, therefore, therefore I am terrible at this and I won't even try. 
And so these things become self-limiting beliefs that get, that get um, kind of reinforced through our own tools. And I, I do think that in the world of ThinkShift, where we're really playing around with how, how you make people change the way they think, it's extraordinary to me when we work with people for, for an extended period of time, and they do genuinely shift the way they think, that what actually changes is their profiles too. It's just that most people don't do that. Therefore, we think that these profiles don't change, right? So the statistics show they don't change, but that's because most people can't be bothered, right? But if you actually, the fabulous few who will change will actually see all their profiles. It doesn't matter which one it is, Enneagram, whether it's Myers-Briggs, whether it's DISC, whether it's whole, it doesn't matter, any of them, pick one. Um, they do all change. But what, what scares me a lot um, in this world of, I don't know, data and AI and predictive analytics, right, is we are, we are solving for um, statistical averages, right? But the fabulous few will always be the fabulous few. They're not going to be the average, yeah? And, you know, to me, that's the biggest reason why it's good to be the fabulous few because you're always going to be, um, you're always going to be in high demand because the volume is going to decrease because our tools are going are gonna to sort of standardize non-fabulousness. And it's going to become, you know, people are going to know it. They're going to feel it. They're going to see it. But they're going to have a much harder time expressing the why. And that's kind of, uh, that's kind of my hope. My hope that executives really listen to that because that's why we have so many executives and so few leaders. Yeah, and that's deep lips. And it's, it's what you find in organizations as well, performance management processes or learning and development. It also indexes towards the, the middle, the average. It doesn't, go, it doesn't go at the speed of the top fabulous few. And that makes it even harder. Well, if you think about it, if I'm, if I'm an HR or talent development department, then I want to optimize for the most people, right? Absolutely. It's very, very hard to optimize for the fabulous few, which is why the fabulous few always leave and move around because they, they, they have to take control of their own careers because the yeah. environment won't do it for them. It's, it's a really interesting challenge, right? Um, but, but that's also the reason you know, for our audience. This is why we want you to be fabulous because you get to write your own ticket. Yeah, yeah. But to the focus of this conversation, it's a very deliberate practice it doesn't just happen it's a choice it's a commitment it's a willing to be uncomfortable and get rid of the various elements of your ego that are holding you where you are and have that beginner's mindset and be willing to go deep and rewire those deep beliefs that you have to operate at the level you're at in the way that's yeah. most effective for your situation yeah. it, it's, it's it is very very hard you know, a simple um, analogy I sometimes try to give people to make it not feel so daunting and scary is um, uh, um, it's a techie one. And, and it's just think of it as a core operating, like you've got to be willing to go back to your core operating system and do some upgrades. If all you want to do is fiddle around with PowerPoint, Excel, or Google Docs, then, then you're never really going to do that. If, you, if you're going to focus on um, your core operating system, then that is going to make a difference. So, Vips, we've gone through the three stages of our career journey and what it looks like to be deliberate in terms of rewiring your mindset at each of those three stages. Why don't we spend the last few minutes before we close out looking at the rookie mistakes of not being deliberate at each of those three phases? So what happens when you're not deliberate? So let's start with superstar performers. So when you're not deliberate as a superstar performer, so I'll give you an example. As a superstar performer, if you're not deliberate about thinking through how do you show up as a superstar performer when you've come in as a student or wherever your journey was before that, you're not going to spend the time and effort to understand what attention to detail looks like and why it's so important to those around you. That's one rookie error. Yeah, I'll give you another one for, for a superstar performer. You turn up and you, you, you're not deliberate about setting yourself goals or learning objectives. And so what then happens, you just get asked to do anything and then you feel like you end up doing lots of menial tasks and you don't feel like you're growing or learning and then it gets held against you when it's when when pay rise and promotion time comes around and then the third would be if you don't take the time to master your craft but you move around and try and do lots of different things and become an expert at nothing so you've got nothing foundational to anchor your craft off so what about managers vips let's think about the rookie mistakes that people make as a manager of not being deliberate and I'll kick us off again so 
if you get promoted and you're excited, you've got a title and an office and you keep doing what you did before. So you are very comfortable at getting something done and you want to do it faster and better than your team that you now have. That's a rookie error because your job is not to do the work in the same way you did before. You're not the content expert anymore. Certainly not what you're being paid to do. You're being paid to build a high-performing team. So if you don't slow down and spend the time thinking about deliberately, how do I think about my job differently, you're going to enter that circle of suck, suck in a deep, deep way. Rookie error number one. Yeah. I'll give another one that kind of a, is a specialization of that maybe. You, you try to still maintain your high level of expertise more so than the people in your team because you're just going to burn yourself out. Yeah. And a, a third one for managers is if you don't do the deep work to rewire how you think about value and what value looks like as a manager and an executive in an organization, and it's no longer related to the specific tactics of doing you will surround yourself with a lot of bureaucracy and admin and reports because it's going to make you feel important. But it just generates a huge amount of work for others. And to what end? Yeah, I got one more. I don't want to do three, but I got four. Teaching. If you if you if you don't see yourself as a teacher and an enabler for your team, it's going to go wrong because your team's going to abandon you. And the more they abandon you, the less you're going to be able to scale and grow. I like it, Vips. All right, so for our top-notch executives. So one that comes to me, Vips, is as we think about your role as an executive, you're now further removed from the end result. You will have a vision. You will have a roadmap of how to get there. But beyond that, it's not really in your control. And if you don't get comfortable with enabling teams and your managers and leaders to really drive forward the outcomes that you've laid out in your, in your roadmap, you're going to want to default back to checking on everything they're doing and asking for more of those status reports and that detail to make yourself feel comfortable. And that's, that's a very, very hard thing because, quite frankly, this is when the imposter syndrome kicks in the most. Yep. I've got another one in the variation on that theme as well. I think um, you have to make a really deliberate decision to understand business rather than functional area. Um, what I think happens is too many executives are very credible at running, quote unquote, their department or their function or their area, but they're, they're, they're pretty hopeless when it comes to going one, one or two degrees beyond their functional domain. And that makes for poor collaboration at best and poor business results at worst. And I'll build on that one, Bips. A third rookie error for executives is that they don't see communication and managing their stakeholders as work. So building on what you're saying, they focus specifically on the tasks in their department and what needs to get done, but they're not seeing themselves as a steward of the greater business. And what's the level of communication needed with peers and other stakeholders to drive results that is a balance between what they're trying to get done and what's right for the organizations. It's no longer only their agenda. Yeah, that's pretty awesome. I think that's a wrap for, for this episode. And uh, um, we're going to be back next week when we do the third D, which is going to be, what does it mean to be dynamic? And then after that, the fourth one will be Seek Discovery, which will be in two weeks' time. Thank you all. Thank you, guys. We'll see you next week. 